0: Hi, everybody. This is John Montoya. And this is John Perrings. We're authorized infinite banking practitioners and hosts of the fifth edition. Episode 30, getting started with IBC in your 50s. Let's talk about in this episode, what we experience when we're talking to people in their 50s who come to us with financial related questions. They're interested in IBC. And let's talk about the struggles that they're facing the challenges that they have, and where IBC really builds additional value to maybe to what they're already doing, or maybe they're really late in the game. They haven't started to prepare for retirement. Uh, Let's go ahead and cover what's going on in their 50s.
1: You know, I think there are several things that are happening. If I could just list it out real quick, a lot of people are in their fifties, they're starting to hit their kind of max lifetime income potential or max income levels in their fifties. A lot of people are getting into C-level positions. Their businesses are starting to hit their stride. A lot of times they're starting to really max out their retirement plans. So, you know, in your fifties, you can start contributing a little more in terms of catch up money into retirement plans. They might be maxing out equity opportunities in the form of you know, stock options and RSUs, meaning that because they're in these C-level positions, they're really starting to see big opportunities, especially in, in the world that I play in, in the startup world. Their kids might be out of the house by this point or in college. Assets are typically multiplying. You know, where they're starting to see multiple income streams. They might be you know, really starting to use leverage sometimes in a good way, sometimes maybe in the not, not the best way. Aging and dying parents are, are triggering them thinking about their own estate planning. Some folks are considering early retirement and they're wanting to know how they can implement some of the strategies that we teach to make that happen. A lot of times they're also in the market for some term insurance. If they already have one, it'll be expiring soon. And so sometimes people People in their fifties, they'll kind of look to maybe buy that last term policy in order to get them through their seventies or even eighties. It's still relatively affordable and, and available at that point. And so sometimes we'll have those conversations about whether or not they should buy another term policy or maybe should they look at something a little more or a lot more permanent.
0: They've got so much going on. Well, how in the heck can they be efficient With all their dollars, how can we make those dollars that they have the ability to put away do many things at the same time? Like you mentioned, there there could be a need for additional life insurance because the term is expiring. So there's other dollars that have to go into a bucket for protection for the family over here. They've got to max out their retirement dollars. And, you know, we start talking about the efficiency of those dollars now going into their retirement plan compared to maybe going someplace else. So I, I think the overriding theme for me is efficiency and trying to get as much bang for their buck as they possibly can while they still can, because retirement, if you are in your 50s, I mean, you're you're looking at retirement, hopefully, within the next decade. So it, it's really a time when, if you're not serious about it now, I don't know if it's ever going to happen, because th- th- you only have so much time left before you got to make everything in your portfolio, everything in your retirement plan, start to click and work together. Um, and that, that's really where you want to be as ruthlessly efficient as you can be. So some other items that we have here listed out, as far as challenges, we got taxes. I mean, that's, that's a universal truth at really any age, but when you're in your fifties and probably at your highest earning potential, you've got a big problem with uncle Sam and it's not necessarily going to get any better just because maybe you've been contributing to a 401k, you know, you hear it all the time. Well, I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket when I retire, because I don't know, you've failed to plan. I, I don't quite understand the thinking behind that, right? Because who wants to have less income in retirement? Everybody that I talk to is trying to figure out how to get the most income. Well, if you're contributing to a 401k well, you've guaranteed yourself a tax liability for the rest of your life. So you need to have some strategies that are going to help reduce taxation in retirement. So that, that's definitely a topic of conversation that we have. There also might be debt. You know, millions of people across the country still have mortgage debt in their 50s. And some of them might be refinancing into a new 30-year fix at that point. And what's your plan to to pay off that debt going into retirement? That's something that, that needs to be brought up and worked out because the default plan of paying the bank every single month for 30 years, that's the bank's plan. And until you come up with a better plan, you're being inefficient with those dollars. So that's another topic of conversation. We also have, if you're a business owner, succession plans. Who's going to take over the business when you retire? So th- there's a lot that needs to be worked out here.
1: Yeah, and it's that decade where one of the conversations we'll have with people is that it's called the financial junk drawer. It's kind of like that drawer in your kitchen that's got like a dead nine volt battery, three Phillips head screwdrivers for some reason, and you know maybe a uh, some twine. And it's kind of like. When you get to this decade, you've had many, many years of making financial decisions for different reasons at different times in your life and a lot of times with different people. And so when they're in their 50s, they're kind of like they really have that junk drawer really full of junk. And to your point, you know, a lot of times they don't really have a strategy in terms of how they're actually going to use that all those financial products in their junk drawer and really make a plan out of that to kind of further that, the number one thing that I see in terms of change priorities is how they feel about passing something on to the next generation. And that's something that almost everyone in this age group or in their 60s, that has changed for them at some point down the line, where when they were younger, they weren't as worried about it. And now it becomes like a top three priority for them. And so that, that also gets into what you were mentioning about succession and retirement planning. And so it's interesting because no matter what the person's financial picture is, I see people that don't have much, they haven't really done much to get to the point where they feel comfortable. And then I also see people that have done a lot to get to the point where they want to feel comfortable, but in either case, they don't really have a plan. Um, it's just really kind of like, well, I was told I should be contributing to all these accounts. I was told I should buy a bunch of real estate, cash-flowing real estate. Meanwhile, to your point, again, you know, they've got 25 years left on their mortgage when they're, you know, 55 years old, and you know, none of that real estate is really cash-flowing anything significant until that debt gets paid off. And so, you know, is there a plan? to get that debt paid off where those real estate assets could actually start generating significant cash flow for their retirement.
0: Yeah. And I think the typical advice that people are getting is the same that they've been following all the previous decades and we, we know it by heart, you know, max out the, those qualified plans. It's really what we call the balance sheet approach where you're trying to build the biggest account possible with no end game approach to how you're going to generate an income from it. There's a lack of efficiency just from that standpoint where everyone's all in on the market and the, the market has so much risk involved with it, it may be a great tool for accumulation, but it certainly is a lousy one for distribution. And to be a decade out minimally from retirement, that that's a pretty precarious position to be in and not have any type of distribution model set up where you have a plan that's going to show you exactly how to create as many dollars in retirement as possible. The the most common thing I hear people say for people in their 50s is, yeah, I'm I'm maxing out my 401k and I'm contributing extra for the catch up. What's interesting is that the that catch up amount while it's great that you have the capacity to, to save more, I think the better question is where could you be saving to generate even more retirement dollars. Because if you knew the truth, I don't think you'd be contributing as much as you are to a 401k qualified plan, except to maybe get that match. And we can run the numbers and show you just how much more efficient you can be with those dollars you are saving. But you have to know that other plans do exist. And not everything is just 100% market based. Because like I said, that is a a tool for accumulation, but it is a lousy tool for distribution. You you need to get it on your radar that distribution it's going to be coming soon.
1: I, I think to add on to that, a lot of people they're in their fifties and and retirement is looming, so to speak, but they also are in a position where they can still make some changes. You know, they 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 actually can do a lot in their fifties where. You know, they, because they've accumulated so much, if they've gotten to that point where they, they actually have accumulated, it really is just a matter at that point of determining your plan for distribution. You know, one of the things that I'll see out there are these kind of complicated approaches to putting assets in different buckets. The the problem is everything with those bucket type strategies is everything is in the market. And so they end up taking the same risks that if a total market correction happens, their bucket strategies are not really diversified like they think they are. And they're not actually taking advantage of you know some of the actuarial science that's available where you can really pool your risk with other people and create some forms of guarantees that allow everything else to happen. So I think The complicated strategies are usually there because they're trying to hedge risk on their own. Meanwhile, there's an entire industry out there called the insurance industry that can hedge that risk much more effectively and efficiently than you can on your own. But yet a lot of people won't look at it because they're afraid of missing out on, on a rate of return. And what they don't understand is now that they're in their 50s, rate of return, they're kind of already on that trajectory and they they really don't need to worry about a rate of return as much as they need to worry about how they're going to efficiently distribute those assets into income over their retirement.
0: Yeah. The way I've heard it said is people are trying to hedge risk with more risk, Yeah. Yep. right? And it just doesn't work out. The only way that you can hedge risk is with something that has no risk, And guess what does not have any risk whatsoever? It's an IBC whole life policy, right? It's in that category of life insurance that's a non-correlated asset, and it does allow you to effectively and efficiently hedge that risk that you need to balance out and build out a well-thought-out retirement plan. Let's talk a little bit about IBC and, and really whole life insurance because IBC as a strategy incorporates whole life, but it doesn't necessarily need to be an IBC designed whole life policy. In fact, in some ways, just having a traditional whole life policy where you have more death benefit at this stage actually makes more sense for a number of reasons. We do need to take a look at you know just what is the right amount of death benefit needed to make your retirement plan generate as much income as possible. Because at the end of the day, we need to generate dollars and people always want more guaranteed income than non-guaranteed income. I mean, if you ask anyone with a pension, if they would trade it for a 401k, you get a pretty quick answer. No way, right? That's right. People love their pensions because it's a guaranteed income. My mom is 78 years old She retired. She was fortunate enough to retire with the pension at age 56 and then later social security. She's happy as a clam because she knows she's got that income coming in every single month. There's no way she'd ever trade her pension for a 401k. You got to be crazy.
1: Yeah. Why would you ever do it? To your point, I don't think anyone would. I was just going to say, in addition to buffering volatility for retirement income by having that Permanent death benefit that you mentioned, and having a big permanent death benefit, it allows you to replace the value of other assets that you've accumulated over your life and, and get more use and enjoyment out of those assets without taking away anything that you want to leave behind. That's another way that you can create more guaranteed income where you can not only ride out volatility in the ups and downs of the market where you don't want to be pulling money out of a down market, you can use life insurance cash value during that during that phase. But you can also, knowing you have this permanent guaranteed tax-free death benefit, at the end of everything, you have kind of like that quote-unquote permission slip idea to spend all of your other assets that you've accumulated over your life.
0: Yeah. And to add to that too, with more permanent death benefit going into retirement, you're also going to have the freedom to choose whether or not you want to take some of those 401k assets and purchase an immediate annuity now an immediate annuity is the type of annuity where you're basically disinheriting or giving up the liquidity of those funds but the reason why you would do it is because it offers the the largest guaranteed payout you can possibly get well the only way if you value leaving a legacy the only way that you would ever take a portion of your retirement dollars or 401k ira assets and buy an immediate annuity is if you knew that you had the death benefit to back it up, to replace those dollars that you're buying that retirement income with. Only 2% of people actually buy an immediate annuity, even though that type of annuity typically pays out the largest retirement income. And the reason why is because they don't want to disinherit their kids of those assets they would otherwise leave to them. Now you've done a couple things. You've guaranteed a legacy to your family, but you've also guaranteed potentially the highest payout that you can get. And that leads us to uh, something called the 4% rule, which if you're not familiar with it, and you've got an all market-based approach, you really should be because that 4% rule has been around for a number of decades. And it basically is the rule of thumb for traditional financial planning that says, well, look, if you do what we say and accumulate the largest balance sheet that you can possibly get, let's just use easy numbers, a million dollars. Well, the 4% rule says that you're gonna be able to potentially withdraw 4% from that million dollars or forty thousand a year, and the probability of you living the rest of your life at least thirty years is pretty good. Uh, that that million dollars will last you the entire thirty years. It's it's financial planning based off of probability, no guarantees, and you're talking about a four percent withdrawal rate, which isn't even realistic these days. And you compare that to these immediate annuities that are paying six and a half maybe even higher depending on your age. So which would you rather have being able to to withdraw 4% from a million or whatever your 401k IRA asset is, or six and a half percent and have it all guaranteed too? it's a no brainer, but you need that death benefit to even have that option. If you have an interest in looking at that strategy, it's called the covered asset strategy. Just ask us about it
1: yeah it's huge and the, some of the more recent research saying that 4% rule is really more like the 3% or maybe even the 2% rule and so the you know the amount of money we can really plan by the way that that really kind of kicked in in March of last year where almost immediately the uh, the the people who had recently retired their distribution amounts really took a hit in terms of what they could actually plan for based on the probabilities. The other problem that I have with that, uh, it's also called the Monte Carlo simulation. The other problem I have with that, the 4% rule Monte Carlo, same thing. If you follow the 4% rule or the 3% rule or the 2% rule, whatever the whatever the percentage you're gonna use, there's a probability of you not running out of money for a period of time. and Let's say that that's eighty five percent. What happens if something happens and you fall out of that eighty five percent bracket? what's the what's the probability of your retirement plan working as planned at that point? It's zero percent once you fall out of that band and once that happens, there's no going back unless you know you plan on going back to work if you can still do that at that point. Make decisions based on information that we don't even have yet is <laughs> I, I think. It's, it's super
0: risky. There's basically two questions you need to ask yourself if you're going to go into retirement with an all market-based approach, and that is how long am I going to live and how much income do I need? Nobody knows the answers to those questions. And that's why you need guarantees as part of your plan. There really has to be a marriage between Wall Street and life insurance without it you're basically living on hope and whatever else helps you sleep at night but in my opinion and seeing it from my mom's experience if you have certainty you have peace of mind and a kind of a fun fact that i learned and i don't know where but i believe it people who have a guaranteed income live longer lives and I think it's it's mainly due to the fact that they have none of the anxiety and stress of worrying about how much they can spend on a month-to-month basis in their retirement. They can actually live life and enjoy it.
1: Let me say one. Can I ask one question on that? It's, it's, it baffles me that people have these plans where they're assuming these rates of return that they're going to get. And I think it's interesting because look at any prospectus or any, any of your paperwork on any of your investments, your 401k, anything, and in big letters on the front page somewhere, it's going to say something to the effect of past performance does not indicate future results, things to that effect. And yet the entire typical planning world revolves around using past performance to plan for the future. And it, it, it kind of drives me crazy a little bit that people just have this assumption that it's all going to work out. Will it work out? Maybe. I do believe in the economy and I do believe in business and I do believe in the ingenuity of our, our people and our companies. But it's like even if the even if the numbers work out there's no way we can guarantee the timing of those numbers and that the timing of when we get positive and negative returns is hugely important when we get into that retirement phase.
0: Really, the only way to guarantee that you will have enough income in retirement is if you're fortunate enough to build a really, really large balance sheet for retirement, right? Because if you can build up $5 million, $10 million or more, and you have to live off you know, that two or 3% rule, well, you've got a very, very high probability. You're going to make that money last the rest of your life, but how easy is it to save those dollars and to grow it at whatever rate of return to hit 5 million, $10 million or more. I mean, that that's extremely challenging for the average person out there. And so that's, that's why I say you've got to be really as efficient as possible when it comes to your retirement planning because the lack of efficiency is going to limit your options once you realize you've could have made better choices but you just didn't realize what those choices were and so that's really where we need to have that conversation because you need to have another option you need to get another perspective on how you can build out a plan that's going to maximize the use of all your dollars to get you to retirement and then through retirement because it's not just about getting to retirement you got to make it all the way through to the end of retirement too
1: and even for those people that are above average that do create those 5 million those 10 million dollar account they've been successful in the accumulation phase you know those same people are also still often betting on being in a lower tax bracket but it depends on where those those assets are you know, if those are in tax deferred qualified plans, there's something that somehow people seem to miss on these qualified plans. And that's the required minimum distributions on these accounts. So when they get into their seventies and they've, and they have these big retirement accounts, everything worked out the way they wanted it to, their retirement accounts uh, grew to be huge. But now all of a sudden their required minimum distributions bump them right into the, into the highest tax bracket. And then you talk about if you want to leave something behind, if you're really successful, how are you going to manage the estate tax? We've got some pretty high estate tax thresholds right now that are scheduled to sunset. You know, How are you going to manage that? And so I think that segues nicely into the financial priorities of someone in their 50s. If we just look at the first one, we've already been talking about it. So what are some financial priorities of someone in their 50s? And I'd say the first one is aggressively create a volatility buffer. This will be positive for anyone, no matter if you're if you're below average, average or above average. Having a volatility buffer will preserve more of your wealth that are in more, you know, market-based type assets because you will not have to pull that money out during down years in the market during your retirement. And then the other thing, when we were just talking about people who are above average, especially for those people, we have to develop strategies to minimize taxes. You know, those are taxes on uh, deferred assets and they're they're taxes on really all of your assets unless there's only so much you can get into the tax-free bucket. So we've got to have strategies to minimize the taxes and offset those taxes so that you get more and you can use and enjoy more when you're in retirement. What are a couple other ones, John?
0: One that I have off the top of my head is, I'm going to sound like a broken record because I feel like I keep on saying efficiency, but if we're talking about those above average people with four or 5 million plus saved going into retirement, I go back to how much income is that going to generate in retirement? Let's say, let's make the, the number instead of a million, let's add a zero and let's make it 10 million. Off that 3% rule, right? we've now brought 4% down to 3% to be more realistic with the type of environment that we're in, bond rates being so low, volatility of the market. Well, 3% of $10 million is what? $300,000 a year. You are essentially having to put every single dollar in the market to generate that $300,000 a year if you got a $10 million net worth. How efficient is that? Don't you think that you could be more efficient with those dollars where you could get not just $300,000 on probability based off a safe withdrawal rate, but $300,000 of guaranteed income without needing to have all $10 million in the marketplace, meaning maybe you would only need to put 70% of that $10 million into something that generates guaranteed income And what does that leave you? The other 30% to be invested in the market. So what that brings me to is your actual liquidity, because whatever your number is, whatever your balance sheet number is going into retirement, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, it's got to be all in to generate whatever income you're going to generate for yourself in retirement unless you do the type of planning that we're talking about. So it is about being efficient. And the extra perk is that the efficiency that you're going to create in your plan is going to give you additional liquidity with your overall portfolio. So you're not having to use 100% of it to generate your income in retirement. You can actually have money invested in the market and keep it there without having to be concerned about it producing an income for you. That's efficiency and liquidity. True liquidity, I would add.
1: Yeah. And to just wrap this part of it up with uh, regarding efficiency, at this stage in your 50s, to make everything as efficient as possible, we want to start prioritizing the avoidance of losses. And so this starts to become critical uh, when we get into our 50s, where the long term is now becoming the short term. And so starting to look at ways to avoid losses is something that I think needs to be a lot more seriously looked at. And by avoiding those losses and creating liquidity like John's saying, that can come along where you can now start creating strategies that build multiple streams of income. We talk about being diversified. Well, how about how about diversified income stream? And if we can set things like that up, all of a sudden, you know, our retirement starts looking very very nice, very comfortable and a lot of fun, probably.
0: <laughs> yeah, way more enjoyable. So let's talk about common objections to this type of strategy, because maybe it's the first time they're hearing about these options. What What's some of the concerns that people have?
1: The first one starts in people's 40s, where I hear this, you know, even when they're in their 40s, and they're wondering if they're too old to get started with something like this. And I think the the short answer for me is always no, obviously every with, you know, especially with life insurance, everything depends on your, on your health, but absolutely not. You know, you know, we have tons of clients in our fifties and it's not too late. It's certainly not as cheap as it would have been if you'd done it in your thirties or twenties, but it's absolutely reasonable. It still works. It's very effective in terms of doing all the things that we just discussed, getting started in your fifties. One of the other ones that is a little more difficult to get your head around is when you start a life insurance policy, especially if, if we're looking at cash value, which, you know, by the time people get to us after they've done a bunch of research on infinite banking, they're, they're highly focused on cash value. It's difficult to see that capitalization period in the early years of a life insurance policy, and it, it, it's hard to get your head around how that could make sense. Sometimes it's true where, hey, this could take a long time to build up cash, but depending on how the policy is structured and how much we could actually fund it, that can be mitigated. One of the things people have a hard time getting around is like where the cash is going to come from, but as you're entering your 50s, there are options that we could start redirecting some money in order to create this asset that, could, that provides the volatility buffer and provides the death benefit and provides a decent amount of cash value or, and even a lot of cash value. The other thing I would say to that is, as we mentioned before, it may not be all about the cash value at this point. It may be where we're looking to create a big death benefit in order to get as much money as possible out of the other assets. And so it really depends on the individual situation. But, you know, giving up liquidity, there are certainly ways to do that where we're not actually affecting the overall liquidity situation of a given person. So if you've got some money sitting somewhere and you still have an income we can schedule the premiums in a way that your liquidity is not actually decreased and you still have access to all the cash you need to have access to in order to do other economic activities like buying real estate or businesses or whatever it is. Don't just look at the illustration and and see less than 100% cash value in the first few years. It's it's bigger than that and, and we can definitely show you how that, how that works.
0: Yeah, and I would wrap it up on that point by adding... No money put into a permanent life insurance policy, specifically a whole life policy, ever goes to waste. So, that concern about I'm worried about the cost because I am in my 50s, just remember this no dollars that you put into this whole life plan are ever going to go to waste. There's going to be economic value realized from it. And then I wanted to add one more thing because oftentimes if you are, you know, 100% All in in the market, you typically don't have all your money 100% in stocks. You have some type of stock bond portfolio mix, uh, like the traditional 60 40 model 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Well, realistically, what are bonds paying these days? You know, 1% to 2%. And what I would suggest is start to think about the dollars that could go into a whole life policy as part of the bond side of your portfolio. That's typically a portion of your portfolio that in decades past, you'd get 5 6% return on it, but now you're not coming anywhere near it. Well, think about using some of those dollars as a place to redirect and capture this whole life insurance policy, the death benefit, and then of course the cash values that will ultimately build And you're actually going to replace that bond side of your portfolio and create additional value and even more income in retirement. And at the end of the day, you know, we talked about getting more bang for your buck to start this show and and being more efficient. Well, that's exactly how you do it, folks. You look at the options that are out there and you say, well, what is this going to do for me? And you're going to come to find out that this type of planning is going to provide way more value. Than you can get anywhere else if you just stick to the typical default plan.
1: Yeah, maybe one last thing before we get to our recommended reading. I think one last objection is just a lot of people, even in their 50s, are really just not that familiar with using insurance as a type of asset. There's some skepticism around how this could possibly be used. And I think the important thing to understand is these contracts are guaranteed assets a hundred years ago life insurance was a bedrock financial asset for the typical american family where they you know their retirement assets at that point were savings pensions and life insurance and so we're really kind of getting back to more of a traditional type of planning as opposed to what we've seen over the last 40 years with the advent of the of the 401k to kind of wrap up this episode. We have three books for recommended reading. Number one by Dr. Wade Fow, That's P-F-A-U. It's called Safety First Retirement Planning. It's a great book. It gets into all the things that we just talked about. Volatility buffers, asset replacement. I and mean, it talks about different ways to build a volatility buffer. Life insurance isn't the only thing that you can use, but it's probably the most efficient. Uh, the second one is called Guaranteed Income, which talks a lot about annuities. That's by Barry James Dyke. You know, he has a, a lot of great examples, including Shaquille O'Neal, who has you know tons of annuities and uses that to fund his lifestyle the last one is called a book called what would the Rockefellers do by Garrett Gunderson. This is a great book, especially when we get into our fifties and we're really starting to think about legacy planning. And it talks about how to create a multi-generational legacy in a super effective way. And, you know, it does it through story talks about the Rockefellers and the Vanderbilts and how, how they compare and contrast in terms of how they use their money. I think it's a great book to read. And it also reinforces everything that we've, we've been talking about in addition to, you know, how to create the, uh, the legacy. So, So check those books out. I think you'll enjoy them.
0: Awesome. Those are all great recommendations.
1: All right. I think that wraps up this episode of how to get started with IBC in your 50s. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions, feel free to please check out thefifthedition.com. You can email us. You can schedule some time with us. You can schedule a 30-minute free consultation, answer any questions you have. And if you like our podcast consider leaving us a 5 star rating we'd really appreciate it it'll help us get get the word out there about infinite banking and planning for certainty we'll catch you on the next episode